On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Okay, so first we had Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, start out his ministry by binding Satan, the strong man, in the wilderness, and then going around looting his house by delivering people of demons, healing the sick, and that sort of thing. Then came the five controversies with human beings. Our last series covered who the insiders and outsiders in the kingdom are through a series of confrontations and through the teaching of parables. We learn that insiders can become outsiders and that outsiders can become insiders. Most notably his family, right? Who all flat out rejected him and labeled him as being out of his mind. But three of whom later became heavy hitters in the early congregations of believers, and, and then we've got Judas, who started out as an insider, but made a decision to become an outsider. Now we are back to the beginning with cosmic battles, which is how scholars label any battle that is not against flesh and blood. Messiah never acts forcefully against people. He just conquers them in word battles, but with the forces of the enemy, he is violent and relentless. Good lesson for us all. Now, over the next five weeks, he will show us his mastery over the forces of nature with the stilling of the storm, the demoniac, you know, with the deliverance of the possessed garrison man, and two different kinds of death. Social death due to bleeding impurity, and actual physical death. At the end of his proving himself to the amazed crowds, we will see the shocking conclusion to this section of scripture when he is rejected in his own hometown. This will take us through the remainder of chapter 4 and up to uh, chapter 6, verse 6. It would, you know, it'd always be more convenient if thematic grouping obeyed chapter divisions, but they don't. The people who put in chapter divisions are the different than the people who um, did this sort of literary analysis of uh, themes in scripture. That's okay. Still grateful for verses and, and chapters because, man, they used to really have to know their stuff a lot better than I do. Anyway, hello, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. 
If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past transcripts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now, let's review the biblical theme of the Yahweh warrior, which we see all over the place in the prophets, but most notably in Isaiah. Yahweh is portrayed time and again as responding to the lack of leadership and the corruption of his shepherds with the promise slash threat that he will come and deal with the intolerable situation personally. Isaiah speaks on a number of occasions about the quote-unquote arm of the Lord, whom um, the Qumran Covenanters, um, who the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 1Q ISA, which is the great Isaiah scroll, good thing to have memorized around here, um, they called the arm of the Lord the Messiah. Now, throughout the prophets and the Psalms, Yahweh is portrayed as personally taking revenge on the enemies of his people. And so all this seemed to point to the Messiah, at least in some traditions, as a warrior who would defeat the Gentiles and restore the kingdom to the restored 12 tribes. There were also a lot of other verses, and especially in Isaiah, which clearly said the Gentiles would be coming into the fold. You know, most notably in the second servant song of Isaiah 49. This is verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, how could Yahweh destroy the nations and at the same time save them and include them in the worship at his temple? Here's Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. All people, sorry. It was anything but a cut-and-dried picture, but then, you know, the fulfillment of Scripture can never be figured out ahead of time. If you remember the series I did on Isaiah and the Messiah, you might remember that predictive prophecy isn't to give us knowledge of the future before things happen, but instead to give us proofs that Yahweh is the only true God, in that he is the only God in all the world's religions and myths, who makes predictions that later come true. None of the other gods can do this. And repeatedly in Isaiah 40 through 55, 
which is called Deutero Isaiah, or Second Isaiah, Yahweh issues challenges for them to predict something, the, the false gods. To predict something, anything. But there's nothing but silence coming from them. Yahweh only calls events before they happen. And, and then when they come to pass, we're able to witness his greatness to the world, you know, to the shame of the powerless gods, who were only considered to be at the mercy of fate and, and not masters of the universe. Yahweh alone is outside, exists outside of our reality. All other gods were at the mercy of it, and they were subject to fate just like everyone else. They were not omnipotent or all-powerful or they didn't know the future. You know, they were as scared of it as anybody else was. And, and so Mark presents Yeshua as the Yahweh warrior. The arm of the Lord, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Messiah. He binds Satan. He tosses out demons. He frees people from sickness and physical bondage, you know, right and left. And he can calm violent storms, as we're going to talk about this, this week. But... They ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Every single one of these stories will be um, different tales of going from death to life. You see, every miracle up to this point has only made Yeshua's true identity more confusing. <laughs> you know, to the crowd and... and and we will see that, you know, later, after the death of John the Baptist, when there's going to be a lot of speculation about who he is. But he's beginning to get bolder, and his works will be more and more self-manifesting. In other words, revealing that he is more than just another prophet or teacher. Okay, so let's get um, to this week's verses here. Of course, we're in uh, chapter 4 of Mo the Gospel of Mark, verse 35, English Standard Version. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. All right, so on what day and where were they? Well, this is the day that he taught the gathered crowd about the parable of the sower and then they retreated and then he he retreated privately excuse me with the 12 and probably all of or, or at least some of the 72 mentioned in Luke 10 once alone with the serious disciples <laughs> he carefully explained the parable of the sower and then taught them a few more parables the hidden lamp the growing seed and the mustard seed you know, presumably this is Capernaum, as we have not had any mention of travel since the rejection of Yeshua by his family and the Beelzebul accusations by the scribes from Jerusalem, because we know that happened in Capernaum. Notice this. What does he say? Let us cross to the other side. 
the retreat to the sea in light of the recent, you know, rejection he's experienced is being portrayed once again in Exodus terms. As Yeshua and his disciples, like Moses, you know, uh, and the Israelites retreat to the sea in response to danger. At this point, whenever there is a problem, Yeshua retreats. And I'm talking about a serious problem, like being accused of being in league with, you know, the prince of demons. Now, why does Yeshua retreat? Well, because it's not yet his time to die. He doesn't pick fights, but um, his work sure provoked them. <laughs> he addresses issues only as necessary. He's there to preach the message of the kingdom to all of Israel, and if he gets himself killed prematurely, he will have failed in his mission. Yeshua isn't rash or a firebrand or zealous in the foolish type of way that we like to be zealous. He is everything that he tells us we need to be in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He's bold in a very dangerous and unworldly way. Violent not toward people, but toward the evil that has people in bondage. We can also see in this verse two other Exodus references. Crossing over is also what happened with Joshua as they entered into the promised land and on the way back from Babylon after the decree of Cyrus. But Yeshua isn't heading into the promised land. But he's going out of it. He's headed to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the Gentiles live, where the cities of the Decapolis were located. Dorothy, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Ah, verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. So, they left the big crowds behind, and they took him where he wanted to go, quote-unquote, just as he was. This means they didn't stop to get supplies, or extra clothing, or money, or anything like that. He said, go, and they just went. Now, other boats came along too, but we don't know who was in them, if it was the 72, or just fishermen, as you know, it was evening, and it was time to start fishing. Or some of the crowd who was, you know, maybe looking for goodies? Just don't know. But this means we have a lot of witnesses, which is important because scholars have pointed out that there are a lot more personal details in this account than in most of what Mark writes. This reads like it came from someone who was there and telling a very vivid story of their first-hand experience. Sort of like... um. The account of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, where all of a sudden it, it switches to first person, which you just almost never see in the Hebrew scriptures. And he's talking about, you know, just very vividly what happened to him. Now, this is not first person. This is second person. But it's like um, whoever wrote the gospel of Mark, maybe it was Mark, um, you know, the cousin of Barnabas. But, um, you know, maybe he is dictating it from someone who's telling it to him. We don't know. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, the Sea of Galilee is prone to violent storms, rising up almost out of nowhere 
at night. Um, because it, you know, it effectively lies down in the bottom of a basin. So, you know, winds sweep down, and, and the sea can become very dangerous very quickly. Waves, and this really, you know, you never catch me out there at night because, when I really don't like water, okay? <laughs> Waves can get up to seven feet high during a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, crazy in the middle of the night, too. Um, you know, that's more than tall enough to um, swamp a fishing boat full of men. But remember that these were not scientific people, and when they saw or they saw the sea as a chaotic place with water spirits and demons and the disembodied souls of those who had drowned. This was a scary place at night, and it was at night. You know, the boat would fill up, you know, pretty quickly. Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Can you, you just hear them, you know, accusation? And, and they probably grabbing him by the, they say, wake up, wake up. Now, three guesses what this is supposed to remind us of. I know you guys only needed one. Jonah, right? Jonah was a prophet escaping God's will, and he fled to Tarshish, which was just as about as far as a man could get from Israel back in the day. The Mediterranean Sea rose up in violent protest at the command of God, and the sailors were sure they were going to drown. They go down into the hall, and there's the guilty party sleeping like a baby. It had to have been a supernatural sleep because no one, and I mean no one, can sleep like that unless they're a teenager. I've got two 19-year-olds. Ask me how I know. <laughs> now, the pagans sailing this ship, of course, end up having to chuck Jonah overboard to get the storm to stop. Although they, they were some awesomely decent guys and resisted doing it for as long as possible. Okay. So... You know, we think about it, but the similarities, they're pretty barren between the two stories. There's a boat and a prophet and a storm, and that's about it. You know, Yeshua came to save. Jonah fled in the other direction because he didn't want God to save the Ninevites from the destruction, you know, that he was threatening. Yeshua is going to the other side to have a very serious encounter with Satan and his legions, showing them that there is nowhere to hide. Now, you might be wondering where the heck Yeshua is sleeping as the boat is filling with water. In these type of boats, and you can find one if you Google Sea of Galilee boat, or I will have the link on the transcript, which will go up on Friday. Um, and so there'll be a article and a, and a YouTube video. You know, there was an area tucked under the stern deck where someone could easily take a nap using a ballast bag which would be between 50 and 100 pounds as a pillow. And by someone, I mean not me, because I'd be freaking out. I'd be like telling those guys to stay perfectly still and don't rock the boat under any circumstances. <coughs> I would be white as a sheet. Oh, you know what? I just caught a look at my leg in shorts. Evidently, I already am. <laughs> but the verse says they woke him. Yes, Yeshua was woke. 
but he was actually woke, not like us when we, you know, arrogantly pretend to be woke when we're really just napping and thinking that our opinions on our pet issues make us informed and intelligent. <laughs> Moving on. The word for woke here is, anyone want to venture a guess? Igero, the resurrection word. Oh, remember how I told you this would be a story about going from death to life? Here's our first thematic hint in that direction. Um, back to our links to Jonah. When the captain of the ship woke him, he demanded that Jonah cry out to his god so that they might be saved. But Jonah never even tries this. Because he still isn't repentant and isn't willing to call on God. He is willing to be a martyr, however. And not for the last time in this narrative either. So, you know, what will their um, sleeping teacher do? What will the disciples' sleeping teacher do? Now, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This reminds me of Exodus um, 14.11. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? <laughs> ah, no surprise. <laughs> That complaint was delivered on the shore of the Sea of Reeds, with Pharaoh's army breathing down their necks. You can just hear the disbelief, and they still don't understand. You know, the disciples still don't understand anything about Yeshua. And remember that these guys are fishermen. Fishermen. Hardened. Experienced sailors. And the storm is so bad that they are freaking out. He wakes up. This is actually the only mention, by the way, of Yeshua sleeping in the entire New Testament. Okay? And I am sure they're counting on him to call on God, who seems to always be close by, to answer his prayers. And this is a big difference between Yahweh and the pagan gods as well. Like, you look at the Greek gods, and they were very, very aloof and distant, and even for their favorites, their favor was pretty hit and miss. They had complicated lives to live and couldn't be counted on to intervene, and sometimes they just flat out were paying attention. What will Yeshua do, though? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Well, I will tell you what he didn't do. He didn't call on Yahweh to save them. He was woke, which again, has its root in the resurrection, resurrection, <laughs> sound like Elmer Fudd, the resurrection word, Igero, and then he rebuked. And, and Mark actually uses the same Greek word as has been used to rebuke the demons. And he said, peace, but this isn't shalom. Or the Greek word that is used for shalom. This is actually the very forceful siopao, which means be muzzled. It's not, okay, storm. Gosh, golly, you just calm down there, why don't you, and take a chill pill, mister. This is actively taking authority as one who has absolute authority to control the wind and the waves. 
And evidently, it doesn't take long for the winds to die down as it would, you know, under normal circumstances, under natural circumstances. Boom, the water's like glass, and it's literally smooth sailing. We're going to see this same picture next week with the Garrison demoniac, okay? Violent and uncontrollable one moment, and then the next absolutely calm, respectable, insane. This account with the calming of the storm reads exactly like a deliverance story, as though the sea is possessed and then delivered through the authority of Yeshua. I'm not saying it is, but that's how it reads. And we will be right back for our second half. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week, we are covering Mark chapter 4, verses, oh, let me see, 35 through 41, about the um, stilling of the, the storm at sea, and it's going to get really, really exciting now. <laughs> like, it hasn't been exciting. Maybe you're not excited excited. I'm always excited about this stuff. But uh, so the stuff we've covered so far isn't even the cool stuff. And for the cool stuff, we're going to have to read some verses. I hope you like verses. I, I guess it would be awkward, I suppose, if you were listening to this and you didn't like verses. But All right. Psalm 107. going to read verses uh, 28 through 32. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. <coughs> Excuse me. Jonah, uh, one, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Uh, Job, chapter 9, verses 8 talking about Yahweh, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. All right. So, throughout the scripture, Yahweh alone is portrayed as having total dominance over the seas. The seas are portrayed as being submissive to his will. When Moses is commanded to raise his staff at the shore of the Sea of Reeds, the waters pile up and they create a path for Israel to pass through in safety. When Joshua obeys Yahweh's command to have the Levites carry the ark into the Jordan River, the same thing happens. Of course, on a less dramatic scale because, you know, Jordan River, Yamsuf, not quite as big. Um, Elijah's, and then became Elisha's cloak, 
could perform the same miracle. But they needed props. All right? And it was understood that they were merely prophets operating under authority. Now, what Yeshua did was different. Totally different. He did not invoke the name of Yahweh. He didn't raise a staff or slap down his cloak, or, you know, manipulate the ark, or, or do anything except speak words of his own authority. You know, as just as when he taught and dazzled the synagogue attendees in chapter 1, he, you know, he was teaching not like the scribes, but under his own authority. Yeshua is starting to give blatant hints about who he is and what he is, and still, it's not going to be clear to these guys until after the resurrection. But, um, you know, these proofs aren't so they will know right now. Granted, they should be enough to cause, you know, the disciples to trust him. But not enough to show them what still has to be veiled and hidden. It's, it's like predictive prophecy, all right? No one can figure it out ahead of time, and yet people make a lot of money claiming otherwise. But later on, after the fact, people say, Oh, I totally get it now. How could we be so blind? Well, that's the thing. We are blind by device. On purpose. Those who know the future have no need to trust God because they can instead trust in their own cleverness. No. These words are there to look back on, and, and works, are um, there to look back on after the fact as proofs of his authority, power, and identity. Pretty cool. Um, as a hilarious aside, Second Maccabees records this incident, okay, where evidently Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, the Seleucid king who persecuted and slaughtered the Jews, and defiled the temple, um, and was responsible for, you know, the Maccabean revolt. Decide, so Antiochus Epiphanes decided he was actually divine, and was going to show everyone by commanding the water. And this is Second Maccabees chapter 9, verse 8. Thus he, who only a little while before, had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea, and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance, was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And, you know, this is in reference, uh, context, the context of this is in reference to the details of his death. You know, talk about adding insult to injury, right? He had thought that he could um, command the waters, and he couldn't. So back to the Bible here, uh, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Hmm. And this is actually the first faith rebuke towards the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. He has marveled in the past at their lack of understanding, but has never called their faith into question before now. This was a huge act of salvation. Their lives were literally in danger. This wasn't just their overacting as the Sea of Galilee is very deep and, you know, you know, if they went under 
fully clothed, they were going to drown. They they wouldn't have been able to stay above the waves. They had just been transported from the realm of the dead to the realm of the living. Not that they had literally died, but it was inevitable, okay? Now let's go deeper and unpack Yeshua's statements here. Why are you so afraid? What did we see over and over again in my series on Isaiah? Um, and, and actually I'm going to take other parts of Isaiah too that we didn't cover in that because I only did 40 through 55. One day we might do uh, 1 through 39. We'll see. Isaiah 7, 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. Fear God, wait for the Lord. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Chapter 35, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Chapter 40, verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Chapter 41, verse 1. Fear not, for I am with you. 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, have called you by name, you are mine. Chapter 43, verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Alright. In addition, you Yahweh spoke the words, Fear not, to Abraham, to Hagar, and many, many others. And his representatives often speak it to remind people to only fear Yahweh and not their circumstances. Here, After commanding the wind and the waves with a word, Yeshua utters, you know, just, he marvels about their fearfulness. The word, in fact, is calling them cowards. How, you know? He asks, have you still no faith? The word for faith, of course, is uh, pistis, and it means trust. It's actually a military word that describes the level of trust that an army has to have for one another from top to bottom and from bottom to top. Excuse me. Unflinching confidence that your orders will be followed 
if uh, you are above and that your orders can be trusted. You know, if you're below in the pecking order. But, but they didn't have this kind of trust in their leader. They still didn't have the courage to trust Yeshua implicitly. Although that would change after the resurrection. So, you know, let's give credit where credit's due. Evidently, the disciples uh, didn't respond to the calming of the waters with cheering and gratitude. As we see in the next verse. Ah, oh, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? In Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 10, we see that the sailors in the storm, in the literal Hebrew, feared with a great fear. And um, we're seeing the same thing here. The disciples were filled with great fear. <laughs> in Greek, it's megan phobon. <laughs> and actually, you know, obviously phobos is where we get our word phobia. And mega sounds like the, our slang term mega for a good reason. So in modern slang English, they were like mega scared, right? Or, or maybe that was slang 30 years ago. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. The answer to their question of who is this then is absolutely unthinkable to a first century Jew. So their minds won't even allow them to go there. If Yeshua had said, in the name of Adonai, I command you to be muzzled, and it had happened, they would have been hooting and hollering and rejoicing. But Yeshua didn't do that. You know, he didn't call upon the authority of anyone higher than himself. And that's scary if you don't know the end of the story. If you don't have a narrator, you know, like we have. The sea was the livelihood of four of these guys, but they also knew it could be a death trap and uncontrollable. It was believed to be inhabited by demons and ghosts and such, and, and they had a healthy respect for it. They would be idiots to be casual about the power of storms to kill. But this guy, their teacher, the guy they traveled with, he calmed the storm with a few words, and none of them were the correct words. You know, personally, I am not judging them, as I would have wet myself almost immediately. No, I would have wet myself immediately, actually. <laughs> not almost. Um, I'd be too panicked even after the storm died down to think rationally, okay? But the evidence all around them is clashing with their paradigms. And, and paradigms have to be removed by God. It wasn't the time yet. And and so they're terrified, you know, not of the storm anymore, you know, but of Yeshua. What had they gotten themselves into? But we must not mistake their confusion for rejection. They simply lack understanding, all right? Now, I want to read the Yahweh warrior verses from Isaiah 63.7 to 65.7, so we can look for clues as to how Yahweh foreshadowed his workings through Yeshua and the prophets. It's going to be kind of a summing up of what we've gone through so far. Much of this is in the prophetic perfect tense, 
which is speaking of the future as though it has already happened, because if God has ordained it, it might as well have already happened. It's a done deal. It's history that simply has not occurred yet. This looks back and forward, and we will and we'll have a lot of bearing on the teachings over the next few months, too. We're going to find a ton of foreshadowing here about what is going to happen in Yeshua's ministry. So let's start that out. Uh, Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. And this should remind you of the Beelzebul controversy. All right? They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and he, became, he turned and became their enemy. So this is now how he's going to deal with the scribes from Jerusalem and, and the Pharisees. Not the Jews. Leadership, okay? Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Of course, this was via the tabernacle at first, and later it's going to be through Yeshua himself. And who caused his glorious arm, if you remember... Uh, 1QISA, the great Isaiah scroll, and the arm of the Lord being the Messiah, okay, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, he, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So that's the baptism of Yeshua. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Well, we're going to see that next week with the uh, Gerasene demoniac, all right? When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. 
In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We're going to have the woman with the issue of blood in two weeks. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take a hold of you, woman with the issue of blood again. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand, in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the works of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. This is going to happen again. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silence, silent and afflict us so terribly? I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. We're going to see that next week. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Speaking of um, the leadership of his people, all right? A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. We're going to see a guy sitting in tombs and spending the night in secret places next week. Who eat pig's flesh. Oh my gosh, can the, the references to that story get any more, um, you know. And the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. This reminds me of the Pharisee challenges based on their traditions. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap repayment for their former deeds. And, you know, quite a bit of this is a, um, it's a blueprint for at least the next 10 weeks, if I'm counting correctly. <laughs> Yeshua is going to travel to Gentile areas and minister there to a people who have not sought him. We're going to have the Gerasene uh, demoniac next week, followed by the woman with the issue of blood, and then the raising of Jairus' daughter. And those two stories are, of course, that's a, that's a mark and sandwich there for you. They're, they're linked in some really cool ways. He will then be rejected in Nazareth. Um, and then his death at the hands of the um, 
Jerusalem elites, the bureaucrats, will be foreshadowed in the death of John the Baptist at the, uh, the hands of, of Herod Antipas. He'll feed the 5,000 Jews, and then he'll feed the 4,000 Gentiles. He'll walk on water and do battle with the Pharisees over some of their traditions. Lots is coming up. You know, this is really exciting stuff. Yeshua is slowly laying the foundation work for Israel to understand who he is, but only after he's raised. You know, no one can see it now. Not even his family and not his inner circle. If they knew, and if they knew, if, you know, if anyone had been able to predict everything and uh, know all of God's plans, then guess what? The enemy and his forces would have known it too, and they never would have allowed the, um, the Sadduceean chief priests, the high priesthood, to um, turn him over to the Romans for execution. Um, wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. Um, he would have stayed alive. He wouldn't have been able to uh, do it. And so, you know, and, and the thing is, the enemy's a lot smarter than we are. He's been around a lot longer, and, and we're actually not that bright. You know, we, we have such a limited view. So, everything prophecy in Scripture has to be obscured. Um, otherwise, you know, we'd all be messing stuff up. <laughs> We'll see you next week for the exorcism of Legion and um, the death of the death of the pigs. Anyway, I will uh, see you next week. Bye.